am I living the best version of mm. the life that is the best version of myself yeah. and the one that makes me personally happy, that makes me yeah. love who I am. Welcome to Conversations with Sarah, a podcast where you get to listen in on some of my most interesting and personal conversations. I'm Sarah Samuel, and today we're talking about work. I met Nick Kaufman in 2014, in my early days at the Westside Comedy Theater. I remember the first time I ever heard of him. I was Instagram DMing the guy I had a crush on, who had also been my level one improv teacher and who would become my first boyfriend. This particular instance was one of my many rejected attempts at hanging out with my future boyfriend, this time because he was going to Nick Kaufman's house to record an episode of his podcast, Nick Has a Pool House. My future boyfriend said he was going to Nick Kaufman's house as if I would know who he was, which I didn't, but that made me curious and thus began my awareness of the famous Nick Kaufman, a staple of the Westside Comedy Theater stand-up community and podcast extraordinaire. I had never listened to podcasts before, and the thought that someone in my vicinity had one and that the boy I liked was going to be a guest on one was exciting to me. I went on to listen to lots of episodes of Nick Has a Pool House, and then became friendly with Nick when I started interning at the theater on Tuesdays, the night of the stand-up open mic, which Nick hosted. Nick would stay late as we were closing up the theater and complain about his dating life and complain about his work life, and Chris Gorbos, one of the owners of the theater, and the bartender on Tuesday nights would make fun of him, and I always liked these late-night conversations. I wanted to interview Nick for my podcast because I always felt like we related to each other in the sense of not knowing what we wanted to do with our lives and feeling like our attempts at creative success were somewhat futile. And then all of a sudden, one day, Nick got a job at Snapchat, quit his podcast, stopped hosting the open mic, and I basically never saw him again. This seemingly huge jump from one thing to another has always been a huge mystery to me. So I wanted to know what happened. How did this person go from not having any clue as to what he was doing with his life to suddenly finding his dream job? And that's what this conversation is about. So nice to work with another podcaster. I know. This is something I had to <laughs> think about a lot. Thanks I for also, having me over, by the way. I did have construction going oh, yeah, on at my course. house today. I'm, I was thinking, uh, I was like, shoot, do we talk at the stools like we used to or do, uh, or like I used to, or do we like, do I like, do we, you can sit at the couch or I can sit at the chair? I don't know. I'm I good with that. This is good? Okay, good. And it's so nice because um, I never got to be on your podcast. I know. And I've been on a house team for like years now. So Whoa, big timer. <laughs> <laughs> Just kidding. Yeah, I mean it's like I think I did maybe a hundred and five episodes and then I stopped. So crazy. Yeah. I mean my stand up career and the podcast ending, they coincided at the same time. Yeah. I, I wanna that's, that's what I want to talk about. Yeah. Well, so when I first met you, obviously I was interning at the theater on Tuesdays and mm. you were hosting the open mic. <laughs> Yeah, and um, some I, of the happiiest nights of my life were doing was that it? show. Yeah, I loved it. <laughs> Do you I have any like so standout memories? <laughs> well, I remember how I started. I loved the show so much, and this was back when Hampton Yunt was hosting it, and Rob Gleason, and then occasionally Ahmed Barucha. This okay. was way back in 2012. I only know who like one of those people are. I think. So uh, I loved it so much there because they were so funny. These comedians, they were they were really, really funny. Let me put my phone on that. silent. I should do the same. And so I offered to volunteer and I, I basically did kind of what you did, uh, except I, I got to choose the music. And I loved being able to kind of uh, basically create the energy. Before Meaning you were doing tech. Yeah, I was in the back uh, managing the lights, okay. but the, for me, the big thing was the music in between okay. and beforehand, but yes, also the lights. And uh, <laughs> and then one day, Hampton just said to me, hey, do you want to host it? And I'd been doing stand-up for about, I don't know, maybe two years up to that point. And for me, it was like a dream because this open mic at the West Side Comedy Theater was uh, always crowded always uh my like my some of my favorite comedians in LA would always show up and getting that hosting gig you know was just I had so much fun and uh that was basically my life for at least three years was it something that you had like wanted were you like oh I hope to someday host this or did you ever did you not think definitely about it? I absolutely wanted to host and I let people know okay. that I wanted to host <laughs> 
and I also love that uh, in the beginning I was able to, uh, because I was, you know, managing like the music and the lights that I was able to go up every night whenever I wanted. Mm -hmm. So I didn't have to wait in line. Mm -hmm. uh, even though there was something fun about waiting in line back in the day. I don't know what it's like now, but back in the day, man, it was so much fun. Do you want to describe it more? Well... <laughs> Sure. I mean, for people who uh, don't know about this show, it's a Tuesday open mic at Westside Comedy Theater. And the way it worked back then was everyone got three minutes. But in order for you to go up, you had to be one of the first 25 to 30 people in line. Oh, yeah. It's actually not that way anymore. That's yeah, I, I, I I'm pretty sure people got upset over time because <laughs> it was it was pretty popular. And you had to show up maybe two hours before the mic began. So waiting in line was part of the experience mm -hmm. of going to the show. But then there were regular audience members that came in. And a lot of established, established comedians uh, came to this show. I remember Gerard Carmichael was at the first show. The first time I went there, Gerard Carmichael went up. Uh, Hampton Yunt, Rob Gleason, the people I mentioned earlier, uh, the Dead Kevin guys. Mm -hmm. uh, and uh, I, the first open mic I ever did was at... West Side. Uh, but yeah, that was the show. And it went from 10 p.m. to about 1230 or one, depending on how tired the staff got. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. And it was, I guess, yeah, that it is a really long time to have to wait in line for like two hours. And then, yeah. then the show goes itself goes on for so long. Now they do um, like a lottery, I think. That's good. Everyone beforehand gets to put their name in and then they choose like 25 people. I think I, I experienced that near the tail end. I, I would have a bucket and I would mm -hmm. choose the name out of the bucket. I don't know if it's yeah. like that. Is it kind of well, like I that? Well, I think they would choose 25 names first out of, you know, all the people that signed up or however many people they wanted to go. And then they would put them in another bucket and then that's how they would. Wow. Determine the order. Very complicated, it seems like. But, <laughs> I like uh, the old way better. I remember maybe, I giving the show, it was kind of a slow transition for me to stop hosting the show. First, I gave it to Felicia Folks, who's mm -hmm. fantastic. Uh, I, haven't, I haven't heard from her since I gave her the show. I don't uh, even know if she does it anymore. I oh, really? Someone else might do it. No, I'm, not, I, I'm not sure about that at all. I believe Julia Austin yes. hosts the show now. Yes. So uh, it's in really good hands. Mm -hmm. It is, yeah. Yeah, we've had we've had such good hosts. I remember I was like pretty sad when you stopped hosting though. You were a good host. And That's I miss so your nice. text message joke. <laughs> oh, <laughs> like, yeah. I heard over and over and over again. You remember the text message joke. You know, <laughs> I I wouldn't even be able to do it verbatim now. It's been so long. <laughs> were you really reading the text on your phone or did you have it memorized? For the first uh two months I did the bit, mm -hmm. I'd have to read it just mm -hmm. to make sure I got it right. But then for the next uh from then on I was able I, it was just me looking at the phone, but yeah. I had memorized every line. <laughs> That's amazing. <laughs> um, okay, so also the other thing I kind of remember from that time was obviously you were doing your podcast, Nick Has a Pool House. Mm -hmm. Is it still um, up? It's still, Can people listen to it? It's still on the internet. Where, it hasn't though? gone down. It's on iTunes. Oh, you it can, is? If you search Nick Has a Pool House on Google, it's usually the first thing that comes up. Okay, listeners, uh, you have to search this. This is the, that was the first podcast I ever listened to. Really? And I feel like it was the, I feel like maybe because of that, it like imprinted as like the way like that podcasts should be. <laughs> it was a long time and I, ago. <laughs> and I think I like in some of, some of my podcast efforts, cause I've had quite a few now, um, like have sort of used that as like my example. Oh, that's so nice. <laughs> to it. That's so nice. <laughs> and you like, it is referenced. Not often, but it is ref like sometimes we'll be like, and a Nick have has a pool house that's happened or something like that. Um, especially wow. as like my friends and I have, um, you know, done our own podcasts. <laughs> you that's had like so a flattering. big influence. No, that that means a lot, you know, because I I did it all by myself. Yeah. And back then, podcasts were just starting to become popular, but maybe mm -hmm. not to the level that they are now, where mm -hmm. uh, you know it's become more common. I. I, I edited it myself. I used a lot of like weird tech things that like a levelator that oh, some yeah. people still, it allowed for the voices to always be at the same volume. So if yeah. someone screamed, it wouldn't blow your ears out. Mm -hmm. But uh, yeah, that was, it meant a lot to me. And I, I uh, it was kind of like my, my job for at least about two and a half to three years. And it's funny because I listened to an episode about two months ago and I hadn't, I hadn't listened in years mm -hmm. and I was I was thinking to myself god I 
I wish I kept it going a little bit longer because I didn't like the way I was speaking in the podcast. It wasn't conversational enough. It was the introduction yes. where I'm kind of like explaining like, oh, this is uh, the, I'm talking with so-and-so. And it's really interesting because, and I wish I had it, uh, I wish I started it a little more conversational. But then once the podcast started going, it was great. Yeah. Little things like, I don't know, I have this thing where I always feel like uh, it's never... I have a half glass empty viewpoint on things sometimes, and I always want to uh, improve, even if other people like it, and I'm happy that they do. Mm-hmm. I can never, for some reason, I can never be uh, completely uh, satisfied. But it's yeah. really great to hear that, you know, that <laughs> it helped somebody. Yeah. In fact, um, I recently listened to an older. Um, so I, I I tried to start a podcast that was kind of in a similar vein to this one. Um, a few years ago, and I interviewed um, Leah Knauer. <laughs> oh, wow. And we talked, and I I was like, I always wanted to be on Nick Has a Pool House, and I know you always wanted to be on Nick Has a Pool House, so I'm going to ask the questions that Nick would ask <laughs> Oh, my you. God, that's so great. And I feel like we, I feel like maybe I only got to the first, um, the first one of, like, how are you doing today? I think, really, I think that was your first yeah. question. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, how are you? How or are like, you how really? does the pool house make you feel was maybe, maybe the first or the second. The very, like very even, first one. I, yeah, I need to remember that. <laughs> Basically for the people who are listening, the, the way the podcast worked was that I would ask five specific questions every time, the same questions. Mm-hmm. And the one that really started to get things going was what were our first impressions yeah. of each other. Uh, and sometimes they were good, sometimes they weren't. Mm-hmm. And then what our current impressions of each other are today. And then gradually the questions became more personal. Mm-hmm. So hopefully as the podcast went on, uh, you you started to get deeper and deeper. Mm-hmm. And it was also not meant to be funny. You know, I was interviewing these comedians yeah. and I was purposely trying to not have them use jokes as a defense mechanism. Uh, one thing uh, I kind of wish that I did was made it, I wish I made it a video podcast mm. and I posted it on YouTube. And that is something that uh, I think a lot of comedians are doing today really well, like Chris Delia and Theo Vaughn, or like, I guess, Joe Rogan, you know, like they they always videotaped, uh, or even Ali Makovsky, she's doing it right now. I don't know if you uh, I don't know have seen who hers. Most of those people. Are. Uh, she's uh, she's a young, funny comedian. Uh, but yeah, I think that uh, at the video element is uh, really cool too, and it's really exciting to see how how uh, it's developed. You know. Yeah. And it's exciting to hear that you're doing it too. <laughs> yeah, and that's so funny you mentioned. So yeah, you had five specific questions that you would ask, and then so in my early podcasts, I would. I was like, okay, I need to come up with like specific questions to ask each time. And I like kind of tried to do that. And like, oh, that's so funny. Cause I would never actually think of doing that now of like being like, I'm gonna ask the same questions to everyone. Mm-hmm. But so how did you come up with the idea for the podcast? It was, it happened gradually. I think uh, I knew I wanted to start a podcast. I was talking about it with a lot of my friends and I, uh, and I think it was developed in the first episode. Uh, there, uh, the first episode was with Molly, uh, this this girl Molly, who's uh, really funny. And I started to just kind of figure out what I wanted the podcast to be, literally while I was talking to her mm-hmm. in the first episode. And uh, you know, it's a little hazy because it was so long ago. But I remember thinking, oh, I like that. There's an order to it mm-hmm. that. Uh, you know, it doesn't matter how I'll let the podcast go as long as possible. I didn't care how if it was one hour or three hours, mm-hmm. but I would finish the five questions. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I think it was um, that I, I wanted to connect with the people that I was seeing every night, you know, waiting in line at these open mics. You know, everyone was just trying to be on. Yeah. And I I really wanted to get to know them because choosing to do stand up is a crazy thing to do. Uh, and it's. It requires a certain type of personality trait. And it also implies that something went wrong, (laughs) that you're choosing a life that is different than uh, what everyone else does. And most people would be terrified to do. Most people are terrified of just public speaking, let alone stand up. Mm -hmm. And for you to decide, oh, this is what I want to do every night. uh, There are, you don't have to be psychologically unstable, but you definitely have to have something that's a little different than everyone else. And I loved that about the community. How would you say like, um, 
what would you describe like that kind of specific personality trait to me? Well, I mean, I can speak for myself. I think everyone's different. Yeah. Uh, for me, I knew that I wanted to be in comedy since I was young. I remember writing myself a, uh, a letter uh, my teacher in maybe sixth or seventh, actually it was ninth grade, uh, said, write a letter to yourself that you'll get when you're 23 or 24 years old. So he kept the letter and then mailed it to us <gasps> seven years later. Oh my God. I don't have the letter, but I remember what it said. And the main core theme of the entire letter was that I hope you're still like trying to entertain people and still trying to make people laugh. Mm -hmm. And that hit me really hard because at the time I was doing mostly improv at UCB the Upright Citizens Brigade uh, LA uh, theater had only opened maybe one or two years earlier than when I started. And I was kind of deep into that. I didn't start doing stand-up until I was until a few years later, but uh, it really made me feel more confident in my path. Uh, I started working in television as just a PA and I hated it, <laughs> and uh, I. But I really wanted to be a comedy writer or, or uh, just uh, do something in, in comedy. So I just kept on going. And then there was this big moment in my life where I was working at MTV, and I finally got a, a writer's assistant job, which was my goal in terms of a regular job. Mm -hmm. And uh, that show ended, and then I immediately was able to get another job on Hawaii Five O in the writer's room, but it wasn't like I was in the writer's room. I was just getting people coffee and I felt like I had regressed and I was a PA again and I had been saving up a lot of money. And at that point I had started doing stand up for about a year and I loved it. And I said, you know what? Just fuck it. I'm going to quit this job, which I had never quit a job before. And I'm just going to use the money I've saved up and see how far I can push it. Because if I didn't, I would regret it for the rest of my life, just being able to do this full time mm -hmm. for a short, a short period. And I ended up doing it for five years. Uh, and it absolutely shaped who I am. And at the time, I thought I was going to do it for the rest of my life. So it's kind of interesting the way things have uh, turned out today. <laughs> yeah. Um, so you wanted to kind of just get to know people and kind of bring that authenticity kind of back into that like bit heavy group, I guess, of yeah. comedians. Yeah. And then how did you come up? Um, you came up with the questions you said just through conversation with Molly and kind of figuring out. Yeah. And I think that uh, a couple questions start to develop maybe by episode three mm -hmm. or four. Uh, the most embarrassing moment of your life was always the question that I knew I wanted to ask. Okay. And that was the, always the last question because it was usually the most personal and maybe even the funniest. Mm -hmm. It kind of like was a release at the right. end. Uh, but as, um, but then, you know, like uh, certain questions just started to, I realized that I liked the answer that Molly gave to certain questions mm -hmm. that I had. It was originally a test podcast and uh, like I wasn't even going to air it, but okay. because I ended up liking it, I was like, okay, yeah. whatever, it'll just be the first episode. But um, yeah, by the time I hit episode five, I just kept asking people questions and I, because I liked their answers, I was like, okay, I'm holding on to this one. Okay. So their answers actually made you know which questions were good. Yeah. My style of creativity is very reactive where um, I, I know I'm going to fail a lot. So if I see something that turns out to be successful, I attack it. And mm -hmm. not, that applied to the questions that I asked on the podcast and uh, even the, the jokes that I did on stage back in the day. Mm -hmm. Wow, it's so interesting. And I had no, I didn't know that you were like in writer's rooms and things like that. I didn't know anything about that part of your life. Yeah, that was before <laughs> pre-stand-up. Pre-stand-up. Um, what I do remember also, so you had these two like big, sort of projects of like hosting the open mic and you were really into stand-up and the podcast and you know in my eyes I'm like wow these are like so successful like these, you know I was like so new to comedy and I had never even like really wanted to be a comedian so I knew nothing about the world of comedy I was new to the theater and and I guess I will say this also just about the um, podcast is that like as it was so awesome to have those episodes about people that I was getting to know. Mm, <laughs> um, interesting. Like some of the 
They were mostly West Side people. They were West Side people. So yeah. it was fun to like, some of them were like my teachers or I was like starting to become friends with them. And I felt like listening to their episodes kind of like gave me some insight into like who they are and just kind of helped me get to know them in like a cool way. And that just kind of gave this like air of celebrity to like <laughs> the whole thing. You know, it was also a great way for me to become friends with people. Yeah. I remember when I did an episode with... Uh, Chris Gorbos, who is someone who is at Westside all the time. An and owner. The owner, actually. <laughs> and he, uh, and we had, you know, with him and a lot of other people, there there was the friendship before the podcast and the friendship mm. after the podcast. And I think um, that one talk usually changed uh, the friendship in a better way. Yeah. Almost every time. Yeah, because how often do you just get to kind of, like, sit with someone and, like, have a real, like, authentic and personal conversation? Yeah. You know? Yeah, it's so hard in those kind of, like, busy, the busy environment of, like, the theater and bar where there's a million people and everyone's just like, ah! Yeah. It gave me a purpose to speak to them about certain subjects that you normally, usually when I have conversations (laughs) with people, it's maybe to make small talk or Mm -hmm. uh, there's usually something happening that would, like, I don't know, like, if I were to... Even something where maybe I'm ordering a drink at Starbucks or something. It's usually transactional or I'm just mingling. And I hate those conversations. (laughs) I loved that I, um, that there was a purpose. Like I was having this conversation for a reason. It was to, for, for the podcast, but also it was to build a friendship with people. Yeah. Cause I guess you can't, you wouldn't just be able to at the bar, I'd be like, so when was the last time you cried? <laughs> oh, yeah, that was one of the that questions. That was a strange you just thing remi- to ask I anyone. totally forgot that was one of the questions. That was probably the deepest question because it was before the embarrassing moment. Yeah. And that probably didn't come in until maybe like episode four or five. I don't know. You Like, I'll have to check. But, uh, <laughs> yeah, I knew that was kind of a – that ended up being one of the most interesting questions because – people would give the wildest answers that I would never expect. So then the other thing that I remember about that time is that you just often were in this state of just like, what do I do? Like, what am I doing with my life? Which Mm -hmm. I like really related to and like in many ways still relate to. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Um, But I, I just remember, like, I think your leaving of the podcast and um, the open mic and the theater really all together all kind of coincided with you like suddenly getting a job yeah. <laughs> at Snapchat. Um, and I remember, yeah, just everyone was like, oh, just Nick just left for Snapchat. And yeah. like, he's never been back since. <laughs> I don't know if you've never been back, but I yeah. have rarely. I mean, the one time I saw you was just on the street. I don't think I had seen you since mm-hmm. probably you left. Um, and that was about maybe two years after, I, maybe three probably. years after I had stopped doing stand-up. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so I guess I'm just, I'm so curious about that time. I just had a moment where I was like, everyone's going to be so jealous of me that I'm getting to ask you <laughs> about your departure and new yeah. life. Because it was so, like, sudden. And I remember, obviously, like, I think everyone was, like, so happy for you. Because, you know, you talked about how kind of, like, unhappy or just, un, I don't even know, would you describe yourself as, like, unhappy or just unsettled or just kind of, like, in the state of, like, what is, <laughs> what do yeah. I want? What do I want? What yeah. am I doing? Where am I going? And then suddenly it was like, oh, you have this direction. And you just like went. Yeah, it was very quick. Uh, <laughs> it was actually, you know, I'll, I'll go through it. Yeah, because please. it is one of the most important periods of my life. Yeah. Uh, I go through periods of obsession and uh, stand up and comedy that I consider that to be a chapter in my life that okay. is uh, where I was just obsessed. It was all that I thought about, all that I did. And for that period of time, I thought it was what I was going to focus on for the rest of my yeah. life. Does that period of time start like when you were a kid, like you were talking about? Or would you say like, no, that's sort of just like an interest in comedy. And then that period is really just that time that you were I loved about. comedy, mm-hmm. but I didn't actually consider performing comedy okay. or being in it until I was about 21 years old. Okay. Uh, but... I think uh, as I think I'll get into it later, I feel like what I wrote in that letter still holds true today in a weird way. Mm -hmm. But um, yeah, I would say the era is from the age of 21 to 31, 10 years. Wow. Uh, And then there are chapters inside chapters and... 
the most important chapter in that period would be when I was doing stand-up uh, starting from uh, like 26 to 31 years old. Uh, but I'll, I'll tell you what happened. Yes, please do. So excited. So you were right. You know, it's funny because I, I haven't listened to the podcast in a while and I, I was unsettled during that time. I was doing stand-up every night. Things were progressing. I was getting showcases, like like the Comedy Central stuff that Westside was doing. Yeah. Uh, I I felt like I was getting better, but it w- it's tough being a stand-up. You're, I was broke for definitely the last two or three years. Mm-hmm. And when you have no income uh, or the income is just very slow, uh, it does a fart, a start, a fart. It starts to <laughs> affect you psychologically uh, to the point where you think, oh, what, am I presenting value in my life? Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm, I just hit 30. And I was thinking, you know, wh- where, what is the next step for me? Because I love what I'm doing, but I know how much longer it's going to take. And I see all of uh, my friends who are immensely talented and they haven't broken through yet. Yeah. Uh, so... I just knew that uh, in order for something to happen, it would require hard work, but also a lot of luck. And then uh, this random thing happened where uh, Morgan Jay, who is uh, a comedian friend of mine, uh, he, a mutual friend of, uh, I met a friend of his named Evan, and we were Facebook friends. And this guy, Evan, just randomly posted an application for the role of a curator uh, at Snapchat. And the application basically read that uh, people were submitting content uh, like they, through Snapchat stories, which was so new at the time. Uh, and I'll get into that. I'll go back to that in a second. Okay. But basically, it was uh, a job to be creative and create little films out of other people's content. And I had just learned about the stories format uh, because Casey Neistat had started making Snapchat stories. And I found I was blown away by the concept of stories. You know, everyone uses stories now. Probably half mm-hmm. of your friends on Instagram are using Instagram stories, right? I mostly only use stories now. Right. I rarely post like a forever picture. Yeah. <laughs> everyone uses stories now, but yeah. no one realizes that there was a period where, I mean, every, yeah, there was a period <laughs> where it didn't exist. But in 2015, uh, Snapchat had created stories uh, and no one really used it yet. Snapchat was still a little underground, at least with people over the age of 22. Uh, But when I discovered it, I was like, holy shit, this is going to change the world. Wait, are stories, sorry, I've never really been a Snapchat user. (laughs) Stories on Instagram are the same stories that uh, on Snapchat. But the idea of of something disappearing, that's a Snapchat Snapchat did that yes. first. Snapchat, but that's different. Or, or, yes, Snapchat okay. originally started the uh, process of uh, messaging, where you could mm-hmm. message a friend a picture and it would just disappear mm-hmm. after a certain amount of time, usually ten seconds. Yeah. Uh, but when stories were invented, this idea that you could create a ten-second video and you could create as many as you wanted, and they were in chronological order, and they would disappear after twenty-four hours. For me, I re- I had this epiphany that. This I knew it was going to change the world when I saw it because it was so easy to do and it was so fun uh, for people to watch what other people were doing that I thought it was similar. It was just as important of an invention as YouTube. Mm -hmm. It was kind of like um, a mobile version of a new medium that I was just convinced would shift the way people use their phones. Mm -hmm. And this was before I saw the application. I just thought it was really cool. Yeah. And then I saw this role uh, for like Snapchat was pretty young back then, uh, where basically users who who made stories on Snapchat also had the ability to submit those snaps publicly. And my job was to uh, if it was the L.A. story, you could let's say your your snap that you published was in the L.A. area. Every 24 hours, Snapchat was making an L.A. story. Uh, So imagine you making your story for yourself, but in my case, I had access to, I don't know, hundreds of thousands of snaps every single day, and I could basically tell 
a story with all of that content, however I choose to. Oh, cool. And at the time, nothing like this had existed yeah. before, like not, nothing even close to it. And actually, I mean, there are people making individual stories, but in terms of uh, just uh, a aggregate and being able to be creative with other people's content, that was just something that was so brand new. And I, even before I got the job, I was like, okay, I'm obsessed with this position. And I was just so curious by it. And I remember telling my family, uh, I'm going to get this job. I'm going to get it. And I was just very confident that my past in regards to stand-up and the podcast, mm -hmm. which was uh, storytelling-based, had set me up in a way that was really unique for the job. Yeah. Because I knew that they probably weren't trying to hire anyone like me Uh or like maybe they were hiring film majors, but not someone who had been doing stand-up for five right. years. So I knew that I probably came off kind of unique or whatever. And the process to get hired took two months. It was like joining the fun FBI. It was very secretive. <laughs> and yeah, like it was a, a phone interview. And then they, after the phone interview, they're like, okay, you can come on site. And then when I was on site, they had me do these, uh, then I had to do a story challenge where I had to show myself making a story on my own. And this was really early, like stories had just been made. So what you see now, all of your friends doing on Instagram, uh, like that, that took time. Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, so for you to be good at even like telling a normal story, it actually, uh, it actually was challenging back then because no one had done it before, but I passed through that. I made a story called Tinder for Dogs and I went to the dog park and I used my dog and I kind of created a square uh, and why my dog swiped left on mm -hmm. another dog. And uh, I guess it worked. I haven't saved that movie, but uh, it was really nerve wracking because you only had 24 hours to deliver that mm, challenge. Yeah. Then we had an in-person interview and I had to do certain tests uh, because... Uh, they like wanted to make sure that I could handle uh, being under pressure. When we were telling these stories, you only had a very short amount of time uh, because uh, the snaps would disappear unless you posted them. Uh, so it, it was uh, it was a very nerve wracking process, but I got the job. And I remember being so excited uh, because it was... I remember when I got the call where they said, you got it. And they told me, well, you know, whatever my salary was. Mm -hmm. And up until that point, I had had jobs before, but they were all freelance jobs, like a mm -hmm. PA job or, and this was a, a new job that has never existed before. And it was, it was real. And I did it all on my own. And uh, I remember that was one of the happiest days of my life because like I said earlier, you know, I was unsettled. Uh, I was anxious and it felt like this was a path. I kind of understood that uh, this was something that uh, that fit me and who I am because while I loved performing, what I really loved doing was sharing. I, I always loved sharing whether it was uh, inter like whether it was the podcast and it was someone who I wanted other people to know about or pieces of content that I thought were just so great. Or even when I was at West Side doing tech songs that mm -hmm. I wanted everyone to listen to. I yeah. really, really loved sharing so much. And on top of that, the job was, I mean, I, I had access to uh, people choosing to submit these snaps publicly. Uh, but I still felt like I was being very creative because in order to create a narrative with other people's content, it's, it takes a lot of improvisation. It takes a lot of, uh, understanding energy and pace. Mm -hmm. And it was really, really hard to do. Uh, and it was so competitive. Uh, I didn't stop doing stand up when I got the job. I, uh, still tried to do it. But the way the job worked was that uh, it was not like a regular nine to five because the way snaps would come in, like they would disappear. Uh, <laughs> it's hard to explain. I don't know how much I can get into it, but I'll explain uh, my trajectory in the job because it, it, it kind of supplies context for why I stopped doing stand up. Uh, when I first got the job, they said, OK, Nick, you're going to be doing campus stories. And the way that uh, stories worked on Snapchat was that, let's say you went to the University of Arizona, 
there was a little donut created on a map uh, by Snapchat. And if you were in that donut, which was the university, that you would have a little button that would say, uh, submit to the University of Arizona story. And if a user decided to uh, do that, I would then see their snap mm -hmm. and at the time, every kid in college was using Snapchat. So I was telling stories of what was happening at that university uh, every day. And I think maybe 100 campuses had their own story, but only they could see it. If oh, you were okay. in Los Angeles, you wouldn't be able to see the University of Arizona oh, story. It was just cool. for them. Yeah. And then... That, that was like the amateur leagues. And then there were the minor leagues, and those were the city stories. So you had the L.A. story and the New York story. So if you were in L.A., you would have a button that said, submit to the L.A. story. Uh, and that would be accessible for everyone in Los Angeles to view. They were the only ones that could submit, and they were the only ones that could watch it. And then there were the pros, and those were global stories where the entire world got to see uh, what the story was or everyone on Snapchat. So that would be maybe a city life story. Uh, like there was the LA story and the New York story that were happening just 24 seven constantly going, mm -hmm. but then there would be just a one 24 hour run of uh, Rome. You would be like, okay, what's going on in Rome today? And people would, the button for saying submit to Rome would only be available for 24 hours. Oh. Okay. So if they submitted, uh, it would it would literally be in that moment, at that time, at that day. Uh, so if you were working on the Rome story, uh, you would have to come in on Rome time and curate at 8 a.m. Rome time to whenever it was the end of the night. Wow. So if I was doing, say, the Dubai story, I would have to get to work at midnight and go until uh, 8 a.m., Wow. And, but I was just doing campus stories. So uh, <laughs> I, that's intense. And it's very intense. And, uh, and the thing is, is that you were being graded on your quality or like how good yeah. the story was. People were watching it and, and, and you, there would be workshops explaining, okay, like this is, uh, um, this is working. This isn't working. There was always this feeling of getting better, but there were 20 people like me curating these stories mm -hmm. who were all hired around the same time. So it was kind of competitive knowing that like, oh, like there's the minor leagues in city life. Who's <laughs> going to get city life? Oh, who's going to get global stories? Like the people who had been there for a while were doing global stories. You're like, man, one day I'm going to get global <laughs> stories uh, because it was huge. And yeah. for me, especially during the uh, campus stories, I remember uh, driving to work and I would actually like tear up because I was so happy that I had this job that was so cool and different. <laughs> mm -hmm. And the office was on a, in a beach house on, it was in, like on, wow. in Venice. It was just so cool. And like, it felt like we were the part of something, a part of something that was brand new yeah. and was going to just be a huge thing. And it hadn't, no one knew about it yet. Mm -hmm. It was still kind of like underground mm -hmm. and every, there was this excitement. Yeah. Uh, so uh, I, I would come in two hours early to make it seem like I was doing more work than other people. <laughs> I was so obsessed with being the best yeah. at doing it because I, uh, I knew I was good at it because I, I had this like uh, visual storytelling ability from all the, the work I had done uh, like with stand up and just all the things that I did before the job. Yeah. And uh, I started to be fulfilled creatively by the work. And it was so hard that it would take all of your concentration. Uh, but during those first few months when I was doing campus stories, I was also still hosting the show at Westside. And I was still uh, doing stand-up at random shows. But it became harder and harder. And I started to be more creatively fulfilled by this job mm -hmm. than performing because... There's this belief, I have this belief that you can only be good at stand-up unless you're doing it every single night. Yeah. Uh, or it's harder to grow unless you're, you're doing yeah. that. And I wasn't able to, so I was kind of, I, I just felt like, oh, I don't know how I'm going to pull this off. And then I got to the minor leagues. I got the LA story. So then I got really invested in it. Mm. And it was so cool because, you know, when you're doing stand-up, you realize the value of an audience. 
Uh, or even when you're doing a podcast, you're like, I remember when I first started the podcast, it's like, oh shit, 10 people yeah. <laughs> listened in. And then maybe they'll message you and be like, hey, I, I listened to your podcast. I thought this was interesting. I'm like, whoa. Yeah. Uh, or if you're doing a show, you're like, oh shit, 50 yeah. people are here. <laughs> the feedback. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You're like, made it. Yeah. it it's, the, <laughs> it's the feeling of like, oh my God, I'm actually doing this and yeah. the feedback. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then I would, it, it was very odd because I would be making these stories every day. I'm like, oh my God, this audience is so huge. And the people around me in the office didn't realize how big of an audience that was. But because of my past, I was so grateful for what I was able to do because of how many people were being entertained Mm -hmm. by something I was making. But they had no idea who I was. I was was kind of like the man behind the curtain. Mm But for some reason, I didn't mind. Uh, I didn't mind that people didn't know who I was. I kind of wish that that I could talk about it because it was so fascinating yeah. at the time. Uh, but it was. But you had to kind of keep it secret, or like parts of it. No one was allowed to speak about what Snapchat was up to because okay. you know it's. I mean, as you saw with what Instagram did, they took that technology and maybe they didn't make uh, the like stories from other people's content like we did, but uh, they, uh, they invented the, or they recreated that format, the stories Mm -hmm. format. So because there is a lot of competition within the tech space, they wanted to keep everything under wraps. And that meant that you know, no one was allowed inside of the offices. We had a special tool that we used to make these stories. Uh, and also, you know, it's Snapchat, you know, values people's privacy. And, and uh, we were very, very conscious of that. So, uh, yeah, it, I wasn't really allowed to talk about it too much. I was able to say what I did, but uh, uh, I couldn't necessarily say on my bio on Twitter, like, I do this. Mm-hmm. Um, but then... You know, so I, I was doing uh, city stories, and that started to expand as time went on. It was, it was, uh, and it was getting really competitive. A lot of people were losing it, and I bonded with a lot of. I, I've made tons of friends who worked with me during that period because it was so intense, and uh, and it, you never knew if you were doing well enough to get to the next level. Uh, and then something really crazy happened. It was, there was this period where people were, there was murmurs of people moving up from city stories to global stories. And if you did global stories, it's a huge impact. It was really uh, visible on the app. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it was just, it was like, it was a huge goal of mine. And this was about maybe four or five months in. I was still doing stand up, just a little bit less. <laughs> Uh, and then, um, my mom, uh, died unexpectedly. Oh my gosh. Uh, she passed away. Uh, I found out she was sick. This was in September of 2015, but she, uh, I like, I heard that she was sick and then that night she went to the hospital. Uh, it was a very rare form of cancer and 15 days later she was gone. Wow. And then, uh. Five days after she passed away, it was my sister's wedding, and that my mom's my mom was planning my sister's wedding uh, for about a year prior. So there was a lot of, uh, you know, is she going to be able to make it to the wedding? Her mm-hmm. sickness was progressing very quickly, and uh, they ended up having a this uh, ceremony uh, in the emergency room right before she passed away. Wow! And it was like a really intense yeah. uh, period. So. During that time was the transition period of people potentially getting global stories. So during that period, I didn't know how sick my mom was. So I was still working. Uh, I, I, I didn't stop doing what I was doing. And in some ways it was kind of like, I guess, uh, a, a good distraction since there was nothing I could do. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and then, um, I guess, like during that period, I missed a lot of uh, hosting gigs at Westside, um, and I was doing less stand up because there was just so much going on. Like, and I didn't really want to do stand up during that period. Yeah. Uh, 
And, and I think I would have if I was doing stand-up regularly because that would be a cathartic release. But because mm-hmm. I had been only been going up maybe once every five days, I didn't feel comfortable enough to be maybe be talking about this subject yeah. in a way that, that felt right. Yeah. Uh, so uh, a week after my mom passed away, I only took uh, three days off after the wedding. Uh, I didn't have like a bereavement period because I wanted... I, I wanted, I, I don't know, I felt this pressure that this was a once in a lifetime opportunity. And my mom told me to keep going because mm-hmm. uh, she knew how important it was to me. And then uh, a week after I my mom passed away, I got my first global story. And uh, then, and the day after I got my first global story, the owner of West Side Comedy at the time told me that I had missed too many shows and I wouldn't be the host anymore. Wow. Okay. <laughs> and, and he apologized to me later because he knew that my mom passed away. Yeah. And he he did not, I think he didn't make a, the connection at the time that he was telling me that this, this show that I cared so much yeah. about, I loved it. Um, that I wouldn't be doing it anymore because I, I just wasn't around. He didn't make the connection that my mom had just died. <laughs> I don't think. And I think he heard about it or he heard like from someone else that like he, he connected the dots and, uh, and then he wrote me an email apologizing. Yeah. But, uh, you know, during that period I, I had slowly handed it over to Felicia yeah. folks and I was, I didn't feel terrible about losing the show. I felt yeah. like, you know what? I got global. I'm maybe this is the period where I finally separate and now I move on to this new life because uh, I it was all I thought about were, yeah. were global stories. And, you know, I would I don't want to say that my mom's death was responsible for me not doing stand up, but it did um, the you know, because that is something that you know consumes you it's like yeah it was one of the it was the most tragic thing that's happened in my life yeah it just um i guess subconsciously supported that break um but i think the main reason was i just felt like i was being creatively fulfilled in this new uh in this new format that was that was being created and then that was in september of 2015 and from and then from then on to April of 2019, I kept uh, I kept doing it, and I curated 600 global stories. Wow! Uh, and a lot of them meant a great deal to me, especially the first one. It was a New York Comic Con story, but I got to do. Uh, I was in charge of all award shows, so I did the Oscars, the Grammys. Wow! I did Coachella. Um, so cool. I, there were a lot of small ones I really enjoyed, like the Twins Festival. There's like a Twins Festival in Twinsburg, Ohio. And, okay. and like people were snapping in these, these like weird uh, twins, like in triplets. And, and like the and uh, and it was for a huge audience. Mm-hmm. Uh, but pretty much any big event that happened in the world, I got to cover. And it was a really cool way to not only see what was going on in the world, but also uh, it was a way to kind of keep up with current events. Mm -hmm. Uh, and it was so much fun, so stressful. There were times I've, I, the most, the deepest pain that I've ever felt was during this job, because even though I received global stories, uh, it was such a high pressure, um, job. Um, and it was, it was competitive for such a long time that only, uh, the strongest uh, willed people made it through all the way to the end. And things gradually changed because the company got bigger and it was more mm-hmm. corporate. Back then it was more of a startup. Uh, but uh, it absolutely changed my life. And then, um, but yeah, that's that's the story of the transition. Wow. I, yeah, I'm trying to, I don't know if I knew about your mom. As you were saying it, I was thinking, did I know this? It was like one of those, um, but I guess you were you were still around when, when that all happened. So, so I must've heard about it. Yeah. Um, I apologize to the audience for going on such a long rant there, but it is, it is (laughs) probably the craziest story of my life. Yeah. And it's interesting. Like as you're talking, I'm just kind of having a mix of like questions that I want to know sort of about what was going on in your mind, but also like seeing these threads, one of which being like, you seem to get into things at the start of them. Like, 
UCB, you said you like got in when, you know, it's only there for a year or two. West Side, you were there early on hosting the mic and then you like pieced out of that podcast. You were like really early on Snapchat, <laughs> really early on. It's interesting that you kind of get into things in their sort of like early stages and then move on. And that's something that I love doing. That's kind of actually yeah. my like my obsession is finding what's new. Yeah. And uh and there are a lot of new things in this world, mm-hmm. but being able to latch on to something and be, realize, oh my God, this is something really special mm-hmm. uh, is something that, uh, you know, I really, I spend too much time at home yeah. just doing research. Mm-hmm. I, I, it probably has scrambled my brain, <laughs> in mm-hmm. a, uh, but I still do it. I, I even have obsessions right now of new things that may be happening 10 years from now yeah. uh, that um, we can talk about later, but, uh, <laughs> but, uh, yeah, that, you know, like that, um, I think it all correlates back to sharing me wanting yeah. to tell people about what's going on, but then also me experiencing it myself. Yeah. Were you aware of, um, sort of your, like, were you aware of the sharing element as sort of like the core of all the things that you were doing sort of back then, um, when you were kind of doing stand-up and when you were sort of in that. I'm, like, kind of curious about that the phase sort of pre-Snapchat of just, like, kind of post, like, yeah, I'm hosting, yeah, I'm doing this podcast, and pre-Snapchat, like, mm-hmm. where you're kind of in that sort of unknown space and, like, what you were thinking. I mean, if you remember, like, what I didn't, you were thinking or if you were, like... Totally. Yeah. I didn't realize that I that it was such a core part of my life until mm-hmm. Snapchat, but it was always something that I did. And yeah. I never connected the dots. Like in college, uh, I was a film major mm-hmm. and I would host movie nights uh, for my friends mm-hmm. and show them all these weird movies that I had seen <laughs> that they definitely had never heard of. Yeah. And they were game. Like they wanted to yeah. see them because they knew that, you know, I would show them something weird. So it started really early on where I was sharing films Mm -hmm. and then uh it became you know i would like i would constantly share like back in 2006 like youtube videos with my friends or uh i remember there was a good friend of mine where i was showing him Derek comedy videos Mm -hmm. and this is oh my god i loved Derek comedy when i was in college we used to go to see them in at ucb yeah like lonely island Derek comedy that was back in 2006 i'm like these guys are the real deal and you know like don glover yeah but uh yeah and then i think uh when i the Snapchat job was when I realized, oh my God, this is something I've been doing my entire life mm-hmm. and it matches up with uh, my my brain, my visual right. brain. Terrible at math, really good at <laughs> connecting the dots on a visual level. Yeah. Um, so, okay, this is my other question. So I've, I've been, um, all this sort of topic of conversation kind of came out of my question uh, of like it, whether people consider themselves artists and sort of like what that means to them. I think you probably do consider yourself an artist, do you? <laughs> I would never call myself an artist, <laughs> but I do, th- you know, I w- I've been, I think that I wouldn't be happy unless I was doing yeah. creative work of some kind. Yeah. Uh, and I, I would, I don't know if anyone ever uses the word artist today. Uh, like if I ever said, to, if I ever says I'm an artist, they'd be like, go fuck it yourself. Does, <laughs> it does kind of have a specific connotation, but, but I, um, I kind of like it because it, it creates a lot of like weird things in people when they, when they hear it. And I like to know like what those things are, but I guess what I, I'm finding like interesting about what Gore sharing and, um, I think cause it kind of matches actually something about myself that I'm sort of just you know, realized about this, like, sharing and, like, the creativity in sharing, you know, where you're not, like, creating something new out of thin air necessarily, which is, I think, is what a lot of people think of when they think of creativity, but Mm -hmm. that you find creativity in, like, sharing and sort of curating and and editing and kind of... when it comes to creativity, sharing is the genesis of creativity Mm -hmm. because it's all correlated to your own personal taste. Mm -hmm. You, uh are are performing things because you think you'll like them or like they're things that you enjoy and you think other people will enjoy and when you share something it's something that you enjoy that you Mm -hmm. think other people enjoy great artists develop from having great taste and uh (laughs) that's so quotable (laughs) (laughs) there's someone from uh there was an npr interview about he went on this rant about how important 
being creative is to having great taste. Mm -hmm. And uh, I prided myself on developing that taste by sharing things with other people. So I think it's all connected. Mm -hmm. Yeah, definitely. Um, and then I guess my other question is like, how did you relate to like success in all of this? Um, obviously you have this a little bit competitive thing where you're like, I want to get that next kind of promotion mm -hmm. of some sort, whether it's hosting or... Yeah. Um, well, I was terrible, by the way. I mean, I had been doing stand-up <laughs> for so long that being in a corporate environment was just like a nightmare for me because yeah. my job was to literally tell the truth on stage. Even if, uh, you know, like the good comedians, like Gerard Carmichael, he's telling the truth about jokes, but they are, you know, they toe the line mm -hmm. on what is considered okay to say. And yeah. I mean, it's, it's fine as long as it's funny. But uh, when you're in the corporate environment, you can't do that. Right. So uh, it was a major learning process for me to have a regular job, mm -hmm. especially in a startup environment where it was kind of uh, early and not like it wasn't like a regular company back then. Yeah. Uh, and it was it was a major, major adjustment. You know, it's kind of funny because, you know, now I've got a career and I actually have like a job, something I never thought I would have. Even when I got the job at Snapchat, I didn't look at it like a job. Mm -hmm. I was like, oh my God, I'm getting to do this amazing thing. And yeah. I'm coming in at midnight. So like, <laughs> it's kind of like stand up, you know? <laughs> and uh, yeah, now- Yeah, like there's an element of like unrealness to it or something like that. Or yeah, know, like, well, it was just like, you're yeah. an alien. No one, right. my, the job that I did only other, only 15 to 20 other people on the planet have ever, had ever done yeah. the job that I did. Right. Uh, so it was- because it was so weird, yeah. it felt like uh, it felt like something else. And a lot yeah. of people who were really successful in making these stories, they're also incredibly creative. I mean, the people that I worked with were also, uh, you know, like me interviewing people for the podcast, me going through what I went through with Snapchat and the people that worked there were so smart and so uh, and also competitive, but in a, in a really kind way yeah, if that yeah, makes yeah. sense uh the the friends that I made in 2015 and 2016 just uh changed my life and they're incredible people uh, I don't know why I went on that what was the original <laughs> question I was just thinking about how incredible they were your relationship with like success oh and, with success yeah. yeah you know I think about this a lot because you know like I mentioned when I was doing stand-up I was so broke and now I I can I can do whatever I want uh, as long as I still go to work. <laughs> uh, and I think a lot, is my happiness level the same uh, that it was back then compared to now? And it's a little bit better, but not that much better. <laughs> you know, it's not like is if you're mm. I'm doing what I think uh I'm doing what I love because it's what I know I'm best at. I was okay at stand-up. Yeah. I mean, I, I'm hard on myself when it comes to stand-up. But yeah. I knew I, if I did it for another 10 years, I'd be great. Right. Uh, but I, I knew that it was a hard uh, medium for me to perform because I am a very visual person. Mm -hmm. And when I did bits like that phone bit that you were talking about, uh, it was... I would imagine me performing the bit in my head. I would visualize it, but I would never write it down. And that's how I formed bits. I would perform it on stage 10 times and just get the beats from just performing it and visualizing it instead mm -hmm. of actually writing jokes. And uh, that was really hard and made things a little bit slower for me mm -hmm. when I was performing. But with this job, this new job, it was purely visual and it fit what my brain was good at better and because i was good at it, it i was just lucky i just have that that brain for it terrible at other things but good <laughs> at this thing uh that be it made me realize oh this is what i meant to do i i love that people regular people are making great videos and uh the fact that now i'm in a in a in a I'm at a new company now, but even Snapchat, TikTok, I mean, uh, I can talk about that later, but the, the fact that I love user generated content so much, and I love being able to show people the amazing things that, that are happening, that, um, that, that makes me happy. And that makes me feel like I found my path. Mm -hmm. Um, and I do 
still have this unsettling feeling that we're talking about because part of me still wants to find that area where um, I'm pursuing a personal creativity, Mm -hmm. whether it's starting a new podcast or I don't know if I would want to do stand up again, but some other type of creative work that goes beyond just what I'm doing uh, day to day. Yeah. Uh, But in terms of just pure happiness level, it's close to the same. Whether you're broke, whether you have money, like it really doesn't matter. (laughs) It does not matter. It's really like, am I uh, living the best version of Mm -hmm. the life that is the best version of myself and the one that makes me personally happy, that makes me love who I am? Yeah. I love that. And I, and I do also feel like you're so, you are very relationships oriented as well. Like it seems like just in, you're like, I love, you know, being in the line with these people. And I, it seems like kind of everything that you do creatively in your, in your work is sort of like focused on people. That's so funny that yeah. you mentioned that because most people think I'm antisocial. <laughs> well, I don't know how you are. <laughs> In social settings, but exactly, is, but your interest, I No, guess. it's true. It, it does mean a lot to me, but I think it's because it's rare. <laughs> to have, like, a, a rare, what's rare about it? I think that um, the friendships that I have, yeah. I consider to be very right. rare. Okay. Uh, growing up as a kid, I was, I mean, if you want to listen to that, you can listen to the podcast, <laughs> I guess. But I was really isolated growing yeah. up, and, um, and I... I have a very uh, specific personality um, that some people love and some people (laughs) don't like. Mm -hmm. Uh, But uh, I think that I I really value people who um, who I think are uh, really talented or really kind or uh, have certain qualities that um, that I love. and, And my friendships just mean a lot to me. Yeah, 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 yeah. And like, I don't know, I like I kind of going back to your mom, I don't know how you relate to this either. But, um, you know, you live in your pool, a pool house mm-hmm. in the back of your parents house. And I know that that was also sort of a point of contention for you at some points of being like, should I yeah. like move out? I still, you know, live in this pool house, but it's pretty weird, right? I have a, I have a I have a great salary <laughs> now. I'm still living in the pool yeah. house. I could easily get another apartment. Yeah, yeah. Um, and I don't know if like it was meaningful for you too. Like, I, I don't know. I just see your whole story and I'm like, wow, it all like fits together in this like beautiful way of like <laughs> even, even being close, you know, close to your mom in the last, um, you know, year of her life or whatever. And, and before yeah, that. yeah. I mean, I can kind of explain that. I mean, the when, back in 2015, before she passed away, mm-hmm. I was going to move out, mm-hmm. uh, and then she suddenly passed away and it just made more sense because, you know, I don't, I live like Sarah said, I live in a pool house. <laughs> Were you trying <laughs> my, to that? my dad lives in the main house mm-hmm. and, uh, I barely ever see him <laughs> because he, he has his own life. Uh, but being able to make sure that he's okay, uh, was something that was really important to yeah. me in 2016. And I know he really appreciated yeah. it. Uh, the pool house itself, I started to appreciate more as time went on because I was able to save money instead of paying for rent, which Mm -hmm. in Los Angeles is a miracle. Mm -hmm. Uh, and as time went on in 2017 and 2018, uh, I am eventually going to move out soon, but it, (laughs) it actually, um, allowed me to invest in certain things that I think are going to be really new. We talk about new, uh, maybe five years from now, 10 yeah. years from now. And I think will, uh, be are there, there are certain things that are really important to me and living in the pool house, uh, enables me to do those things. Yeah. It's, it's like an interesting thing of like realizing the reality of a situation, or I might be putting words in your mouth, but for me, no. recognizing the real sort of the reality of the situation, um, Versus sort of like expectations and how it compares to those in terms of like, yeah. I don't know if you thought like, oh, I, I should be living on my own and, and whatever. But then it's like, no, but what, look what you have. It's so valuable and it, it gives you opportunity to do other. Yeah. Other, it makes more sense. Versus, I think that yeah. living in this pool house, uh, especially for the last three years, is going to change my life yeah. 10 years from now yeah. because uh, I mean, I guess I'll give the away right now, but, um, you don't the have thing, to. no, 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 no. The okay. reason, the, the thing it. that, um, 
people are, I wonder, like, actually, maybe it's not that crazy, but I started doing research on Bitcoin okay. back in 2017. Yeah. And the white paper, like, basically what describes what Bitcoin is and uh, how the technology has progressed over 10 years, I believe that similar to the stories format or uh, UCB, I, like, they're completely <laughs> different things. But I believe that Bitcoin is going to be a transformative technology that's going to change all of our lives in maybe 10 to 15 years. And by living in the pool house, I'm able to uh, put a, a significant portion of my paycheck into Bitcoin. Mm -hmm. And uh, I think that 10 or 15 years from now, it's probably going to change my life. And it's kind of funny that the pool house may be responsible for that. Yeah. Um, but uh, who knows? I could be wrong and I could lose all that money. <laughs> I'll interview you again in yeah. five years. I've definitely failed a, lot, <laughs> failed a lot of times. But I'm, I feel very confident because I just love researching about it. Yeah. I, it's one of the things I just became obsessed with and, and yeah. tried to learn as much about yeah. people that don't believe it, people that do. Mm -hmm. That's a whole different conversation. <laughs> but um, I am planning on leaving the pool house maybe uh, soon because um, I just... I think it's also related to my dog. I want to like be here until my dog is really old mm -hmm. and then my dog won't care that I'm here. Uh, but uh, I think that, yeah, maybe a year from now I'll make the move. Yeah. But you know what? Yeah, I I think the reason I was upset about living in the pool house during the podcast was because I was so broke. And I yeah. thought that I, even if I, there's no way I can get out. I couldn't afford. Right, like, got stuck. I, maybe I could afford an apartment, but it would be like, you know, I probably have to live with five people and, yeah. <laughs> and it would, uh, it would like, I could, but it would just be like, what's the point? Yeah. And, uh, I just, I felt a little trapped, yeah. but because I know I could, if I want to now, mm -hmm. it changed the way that I viewed this place. Yeah. And then I started to view it in such a, a more positive light. Mm. Um, I do think that, uh, having a little bit of a, salary does affect you psychologically yeah. I didn't think about that for a long time yeah yeah for sure this was such a good conversation I like coming into this I was just like I have no idea like I haven't talked to you so <laughs> I have no idea what it's gonna be like you might have just been like yeah I just like decided to like work at snapchat that's, that's it but wow thank you yeah thank you so much for like sharing all, all of your story no, of with course me and, thank um, you for having me yeah of course this was such a fun and enlightening conversation. I want to point to what Nick said at the very end about his perspective about the pool house changing once he felt like he was choosing to live there rather than feeling like he was stuck there, because that's what Carrie Fazell said in a previous episode. Life becomes, life becomes much better when you feel like you have a choice. Part of feeling that choice is, of course, externally related to being able to afford things, but a lot of it has to do with mindset. And it's such a good reminder for me to acknowledge all the ways in which I have a choice that I might not even be aware of. Going back to Nick's story, I just love it. I love hearing the ways in which people relate to work and success, the opportunities people have, the things that stick, the things that don't. I like hearing about the threads in people's lives that carry through from the beginning to the end, like what Nick said about how he loves to share. It would be easy to hear the bare bones of Nick's story and think he gave up on what he loves, the podcast and stand-up, to work a corporate job. He traded in passion for money and stability, but obviously that's not true. He gave up on something that kind of worked for something that worked even better. Life to me is pretty mysterious, so the more stories I get to hear from people, the more I come to understand the way that life works. Nick's story is such a good example of Joseph Campbell's famous advice, follow your bliss, meaning follow your passion, your inspiration. After we finished recording, Nick said this, the thing that becomes your passion might not even exist yet. That was a good reminder to be patient and to love where we are in our lives, taking all of it, appreciating all of it, even when we don't know the purpose or why things aren't going the way we want them to. Maybe it's teaching us something or maybe the thing that we're looking for simply doesn't exist yet. If you like this episode and you like this podcast, please leave me a rating and review wherever you're listening. 